Confidential gets started right after this message. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. It's a new mindset. And that's why I said, thanks to uh, both presidents that are here, and I have the honor to be here with them, things are changing. And if you This is Eddie Rama, the Prime Minister of Albania. He's speaking in his home capital of Tirana, where fellow leaders of the Western Balkans met with EU leaders this week. For the first time, the Balkans are being seen and treated like a geopolitical, strategic reason for the European Union to think in depth. The last time the EU tried to gather leaders from the region back in June, they faced a near boycott, with some Western Balkan leaders threatening not to come to Brussels. The reason is the crooked spirit of the enlargement. It's totally crooked spirit. Claiming it was a waste of time for many of the countries, which have been waiting in the wings for years to join the EU. Uh, this, the enlargement spirit has gone from a shared vision of an entire community to the kidnapping vehicle of individual member states. Hoping to change that tune, the EU decided to hold its most recent meeting, not in Brussels, but in the region. I want to to underline the very historical dimension of this summit. It's the first time ever that the European European Union gets out of the borders of EU to uh, have a summit. And this happens in uh, the Western Balkans and namely in Albania. The change of location represents, in the words of one diplomat, a new dynamism in relations that nowadays the European Union needs the Western Balkan as much as the Western Balkan needs the European Union. All six non-EU attendees, Albania, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Kosovo, Montenegro, North Macedonia and Serbia, are at different stages in their bids to join the bloc. But their patience is waning. Meanwhile, Russian propaganda and Chinese investment is thriving in the region, emerging as an alternative to EU engagement. Will the European Union be able to keep the Western Balkans on board? I'm Suzanne Lynch, coming to you this week from Tirana. In just a moment, we'll speak to Misha Glenny. The renowned author and now rector of the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna will share his thoughts on the challenges facing the EU in its relationship with the Western Balkans. And later, we'll dive into the fascinating world of spies operating in Brussels, the EU capital, with our colleague Barbara Munz. 
how much do you want to talk about this out loud, right? And you see a big difference there with the US, where you constantly see headlines about, you know, spies being caught, spies being prosecuted. That is very different here in the EU and especially in Belgium. But first, the summit between EU and Western Balkan leaders this week did lead to a few concrete steps. A promise to reduce roaming charges, greater integration between universities and a pledge by Western Balkan countries to align their visa policies with those of the EU to tackle the migration challenges along the Western Balkans route. But concrete progress on joining the EU, after all the ultimate goal of these six members, remained as elusive as ever. The reality is that not all EU countries are in favour of a quick process when it comes to admitting new members of the bloc, as Sweden's new Prime Minister, Ulf Kisterson, told me on his way into the summit. Do you think the EU has been too slow in helping these countries join? No, I do not. Uh, I think there is an ongoing process. All the countries know that there are very high expectations on them and they and they do everything they can to live up to them. And, but there are constant uh, assessments being, being made as well. So I think that's a, that's a fair way to do it. After the summit, I caught up with well-known British journalist and expert in the field, Misha Glennie. Misha Glennie, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, we've just finished another EU Western Balkan summit here in Tirana. There did feel like there was some progress, uh, talking about a roaming charges deal, alliances between universities, etc. But look, give us a general sense Are the Western Balkan countries still as keen on joining the EU or how important is it? Well, they still consider it very important, but they are becoming fairly jaundiced about the whole process because it's a a long time, 20 years, since they were promised that they would all be absorbed into the European Union. And every so often there's a push and then that somehow dribbles away. Now, Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, this matter has once again increased in urgency because where there is a vacuum of EU engagement with uh, the Western Balkans, you see other countries, most notably Russia and China, uh, fill up that vacuum with political and economic influence. Turkey as well is a player in the region, as are some of the, the Emirates as well. So the European Union is slowly waking up to the fact that they have to do something about the Western Balkans because it remains a strategically vulnerable part of the world. Yes, it's interesting because just on the press conference we had there, one of the Albanian journalists made the point, do bombs have to fall uh, on a part of Europe for Europe actually to wake up and take notice of the Balkans? And that there's this sense that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has kind of woken up Europe to this area on its periphery, to its backyard and the need to to have a proper presence there. It has that absolutely right. And the problem is, is that there are still some festering constitutional issues in the Western Balkans, not least of which is the troubled relationship between Belgrade and Pristina, between Serbia and Kosovo. The European Union has stated that Serbia will not be allowed to join the European Union until it recognizes Kosovo as an independent state, which has a slight element of paradox about it because There are several EU countries which haven't recognized Kosovo yet, including Spain and Romania, for example. So that 
problem has to be sorted out and it occasionally flares up. It flared up last week over the issues of Kosovo registration plates and the Serbian minority in Kosovo in the north not wanting to use them. The Kosovo government says ethnic Serbs who have car plates issued by Serbia must change them for Kosovo license plates before the start of November. And also the agreement of six, seven years ago, which stipulated that the Serbs in the north of Kosovo must be allowed to create their own association of municipalities. And until these issues get resolved, it's very tricky to envisage those parts of the Western Balkans being absorbed into the EU. But the EU is very, very slow and and unimaginative about overcoming these problems. So what happened today at the Tiranus summit, particularly in terms of universities being able to engage in European networks and roaming charges being progressively stepped down, this is meant as a sign that the EU is still serious about absorbing these countries. But there is still plenty of opportunity for these countries to destabilise if the EU continues to drag its feet. Yeah, it's interesting that a new concept, if you like, in this whole discussion about enlargement is the fact or the idea that enlargement is not an end to itself, but by small steps, you can bring these countries closer. You can integrate maybe the economies and society a bit more with the EU. I mean, do you think that's a valid point or or is it enough for these countries that have been waiting so long? Well, these countries remain very sceptical about the small steps the one important thing is is um, there have been Schengen visa agreements with these countries which enable people to travel without having to get a visa first. That's been an important signal, but it's still not enough. And the thing is, is that if the EU were to really pull its finger out and start to incentivize these countries to become members, to increase their reform efforts, although some of them have um, gone very far in those reform efforts, sufficient to allow countries like Northern Macedonia and and Albania to join NATO, for example, then it would help. So, for example, the issues of Bosnia, the constitutional problems of Bosnia, they would be solved if both Serbia and Bosnia were to join Croatia in the European Union, much as the way that the shared sovereignty, which Ireland and Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom The the sovereignty issue was solved by joint membership of the European Union. If you pool the membership and have a supranational authority, then your ethnic tensions tend to dissolve, as we've seen with Brexit, when that situation has gone into reverse. So the EU can do a huge amount by accelerating the process of integration And uh, I think they're beginning to wake up to that now. But as your Albanian journalist said, does it take a war in Europe in order for Europe to wake up to what its real strategic interests are? Yes. And I mean, the other issue you mentioned there, Russian and China influence, I suppose in one sense, it's kind of easy to understand maybe the the Russian influence, given the historical ties uh, there and the history. But what about China? I mean, it's really emerged as a big investor, I suppose, in the region in in the last few years. Yes, I mean, this is all part of China's extended Belt and Road project to um, become the major trading nation, not just in Asia, but in Europe as well. This doesn't just affect the uh, Western Balkans. I mean, the Chinese are buying up ports in Europe willy-nilly at the moment. 
and uh, their influence in many countries uh, economically is is huge. What they offer the Western Balkans, which is one of the things that the EU has failed to do utterly, is money for infrastructural projects such as road and rail building. But they're also very interested in some of the critical raw materials, which uh, are abundant in some parts of the Balkans, such as copper in uh, Serbia. And also, Serbia has now uncovered um, significant lithium deposits, which are, of course, critical in the creation of car batteries. And so there is much to play for economically in this region. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we heard some language from the European Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, trying to highlight the investment the EU is putting into the areas. With investments in transport and water and wastewater management, digital smart labs, just to uh, name a few. Here too, we have... Perhaps belatedly so. I mean, as you say, it's not just an issue of Chinese investment just in the Western Balkans. It's happening all over the world where the EU has been, you know, late in getting into places like Africa in terms of financial help. What about, though, the EU, it strikes me in Tirana here that it's, it's just as problems getting its message across. It's, it's losing the PR battle, if you like, about any EU investment. You know, what about the issue of disinformation, of the pro-Russian narratives in the area? Is that a, a challenge? There is disinformation all around the Western Balkans. It's particularly focused on Serbia and uh, Northern Macedonia as well, but also countries already in the EU, like Bulgaria. And this is there to sow doubt about the European Union and its intentions and and the West in general. And um, it's occasionally very effective. It can also be lucrative because, as we know, Northern Macedonia is one of the countries which has become a factory of disinformation, not because it's ideologically inclined that way, but it has a, a lot of young computer literate people who have nothing else to do because they're unemployed and they get paid relatively handsomely for pushing out this stuff. So, yes, it's an issue, but no more of an issue than it is in, say, East Central Europe and indeed Italy, Britain, France and Germany. Thank you so much for joining us, Misha. You're welcome. Coming up, does the EU have a spy problem? We'll find out more about the spooks operating in the EU capital. We'll be right back. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. 
Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Once upon a time, spying or espionage was a fairly straightforward game. Both sides I'm joined now by Barbara Munns, senior trade correspondent and our political resident expert on all things Belgium. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Suzanne. So listen, you've written this really interesting piece about how spies are operating in Brussels, the EU capital. What's the scale of this issue? Well, that's the first question we had. Basically, everybody knows these rumours that Brussels is packed of spies, but nobody really knows how big the problem is. So I went and asked the Belgians who are officially in charge of counterintelligence in Brussels, given that they are the host country of the EU and NATO. And that was kind of the first remarkable thing of the story is they don't know either. It's really hard to get numbers on this specific issues. What we do know, however, is that Brussels is really one of the big hubs when it comes to diplomacy, think tanks, journalism, which are all really good covers for spies. Belgian security officials suspect that in some of the embassies, and we're talking really about the usual suspects, right, the Chinese, the Russians, that about 10 to 20 percent of those official diplomats are actually intelligence officers for those countries. And the same numbers kind of goes for journalists, for example, Chinese journalists here in Brussels. Wow. I mean, fascinating. It's made me think reading your piece about uh, my... (laughs) My colleagues, the people we meet all the time. I mean, for listeners, uh, you know, tuning into our podcast who don't live in Brussels, look, this city is full of, as you say, embassies, diplomats, think tankers, journalists. It's teeming with all these different countries with different interests and, and not just EU countries, a lot of non-EU countries. But one thing that stood out to me in your report, you, you point out that the EEAS, that's the EU's External Action Service, warned in a note to staff in 2019 that spies were listening in at the bars and restaurants near the European Commission's headquarters in Schumann. Yes, exactly. And I mean, journalism is one of the covers, right, for intelligence officers. And it's not so surprising. I mean, even we, if we go to restaurants or bars outside of the Berlemont's sort of commission head building, you overhear a lot of the conversation that can actually be useful. So it's not a surprise that intelligence officers or spies are actually doing the same things. But obviously it's very important, and I think that is what a lot of the security officials told me. It's very important that people are aware of this. You see that in recent years that that kind of mentality has changed both with EU politicians but also Belgian politicians who are responsible for financing Belgian state security and intelligence services, that they are being much more aware that we should actually be thoughtful of this, right? So if you go, for example, to the X-Key, which is inside the ES building, that maybe think about that you should not discuss confidential information at the table of X-Key. That's the coffee shop, the well-known coffee brand brand uh, around Brussels. Yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe explain to us a bit more. So Belgium, you mentioned there at the beginning, it's responsible for handling counterintelligence for effectively the EU and NATO. Yes, exactly. So it's very sensitive to make, for example, a European CIA, which 
some politicians are arguing for to kind of pool the resources of all these countries. But it's too sensitive because a lot of this is national security issue, right? So member states don't want to give that power to the EU. And that really leaves it up to Belgian intelligence services. That has been the case since NATO moved its headquarters to Brussels. And when was that? That was in the 60s. The U.S. at that point put a lot of pressure on Belgium to kind of ramp up its counterintelligence efforts at the time for Soviet spies. Both sides in the Cold War do it. Both sides deny it. So counterintelligence in Belgium has always kind of been there. But of course, throughout the decades and especially kind of in the post-Cold War era, there was less political attention for it. And so also less financing. You had at a certain point, you also had the terrorist attacks right in Paris, Brussels. So a lot of the intelligence work really went to finding out where are the terror attacks going to happen, and so a little bit less focus on counterintelligence. But in recent years, that has really been changing because of a, a couple of spy scandals, but also just in general, as I mentioned, kind of raising awareness that we should look out for intelligence officers from China, from Russia, but also from befriended allies, right? Don't forget that it's not just our strategic rivals that are keeping an eye on us. It's also allies like the US, as we've seen in recent years. So the financing for Belgian intelligence services has gone up. They plan to kind of double their people, spend a lot more money on it. But, and that's a big but, what we hear from a lot of officials, but within Belgium, also with the EU, is that the more you look, the more you'll find, right? So you can almost never have enough money for this counterintelligence work. And I think that is where the kind of raising awareness and making people know that they should be careful really plays into the whole discussion. Just you mentioned there US spying on allies. I mean, I think everyone remembers the controversy over the tapping of Angela Merkel's phone uh, during the Obama years. Um, I mean, any other examples of that? There are no... Public examples, what I did hear from a lot of my conversations, and you see, you hear that I'm trying to be careful because that was kind of the issue with this story, right? Everybody that is involved in either espionage or counterintelligence is obviously not authorized to talk. So it was very, we had to thread very careful to also protect the sources that we talked to for this story. What they said is that one of the main issue, especially when it comes to counterintelligence towards befriended countries, that it is obviously a very much a balancing act in the sense that you don't want to harm diplomatic relations, you don't want to harm the relations that you have with the intelligence services of those countries, because obviously Belgium works together with a lot of other intelligence services, both within the EU, within NATO, but also other countries. They, for example, a couple of years back, they caught a Chinese spy here in Brussels, which was spying in the U.S. for China. I'm Tanya O'Rourke. A dramatic day of testimony in Cincinnati in the federal trial of an accused Chinese spy master. That's right. A Belgian federal police inspector testified about money, cell phones, memory cards, and other electronics found when Yang Jun Shu was arrested in Belgium back in 2018. I team reporter Paula Christian has. And so they worked together really closely with the US to make sure that that spy was caught here in Brussels. So that's kind of a balancing act that a lot of intelligence services have to go by. So look, you, you mentioned there at the beginning no figures for how many spies people think are operating here. I mean, what changes have the Belgian authorities made? Have they upped their game on this? Yes, so it, both in terms of resources, but also people, they have made a lot of extra investments. 
they also have a new national security strategy, which clearly states that they want to make Brussels a, quote, hostile operating environment for intelligence officers, for intelligence officers. So in that sense, they are upping their game, definitely. And you see that also being recognized both within the EU circles, also within NATO, that the Belgians are very much trying to do their job. At the same time, like I said, it will probably never be enough. And that's kind of also the balancing act that you have in a democracy. Obviously, you don't want to go as far as, you know, the Chinese when it comes to intelligence work, especially offensive intelligence work, but also defensive, so the counterintelligence. So it's kind of the balancing act that how much tools do you want to give intelligence officers? And also, how much do you want to talk about this out loud, right? And you see a big difference there with the US, where you constantly see headlines about, you know, spies being caught, spies being prosecuted. Ten Russian intelligence officers have been arrested, allegedly for spying on the US. Charging a team of Chinese spies with stealing American inventions. Earlier today, in the Eastern District of New York, a complaint was unsealed charging two PRC intelligence officers. The Justice Department says Monica Witt gave Iran information But these FBI surveillance tapes just released show members of a ring of Russian sleeper spies passing information and money during a decade-long probe. It all ended with the biggest spy swap since the Cold War. That is very different here in the EU and especially in Belgium, where intelligence services work much more behind the scenes, below the radar. For example, sometimes if they find out that someone is is actually an intelligence officer and not, for example, a diplomat or a journalist, etc. Sometimes what they do is they just tell the people around that person so that the person doesn't have any access anymore to information without kind of actually catching, prosecuting or even exposing the spy itself. Of course, I mean, espionage per se is not classified as a crime in Belgium. And many of the diplomats here, in fact, all of them would be operating with diplomatic immunity. Yes, exactly. And that's one of the challenges definitely for the Belgians and the EU in general, that the law when it comes to espionage in Belgium is is outdated, basically very complicated. They are currently modernizing the law. But even then, the definition of espionage, it's not like the scenes in movies that we have, someone gives you information and you get paid for the information and those are classified national security documents or whatever. Sometimes it's really a fine line, for example, between journalism and espionage in certain countries or diplom- like you said, diplomacy, etc. So that is definitely the challenge that a lot of the intelligence services have. But at the same time, what they told me is that when you know, you know. <laughs> and we have we have a quote in the story from one diplomat saying that it's a little bit like a gaydar, that once you kind of have a feeling of which behavior certain spies have, then it's much easier. It's easier to, to spot. Them. Yeah, exactly. Barbara, thank you so much for that insight. Fascinating stuff. Thanks, Suzanne. And we'll put a link to Barbara's story in our show notes. That's it for this week. Next week is our final episode of 2022. So if you have any suggestions for guests or topics or just want to send us along some nice festive feedback, you can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcast at politico.eu. Thank you this week to Ellen Bonin on production and James Randerson, our editor. This week's episode was produced by our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Tirana. See you next week.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.